come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 14 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., and for this episode is going to be my first episode where I'm going to feature a black director, and that film is going to be Ganja and Hess. And then for the other featured review, I'm going to do 2020 movie of Gretel and Hansel. And then on top of that, I have four mini reviews, which will include The Creature Walks Among Us, Transylvania, the original Rengu, and Murder Party. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is send us over to our first musical break before I get into those mini-reviews. Enjoy. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me, no matter
Okay, and for my first mini review of this week, it'll be The Creature Walks Among Us. This comes from 1956. It was directed by John Sherwood, and it came from a story as well as a screenplay from Arthur A. Ross. It stars Jeff Morrow, Rex Reason, and Lee Snowden. This is a horror sci-fi film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a scientist captures the creature and turns him into an air breather, only for him to escape and start killing. And I should probably lead off stating that this is a little bit misleading, as the creature does do some killing, but it's not as vicious as it makes it sound to be. And much like the sequel prior to this, I really had no idea that there was a third one, but it came up in the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through to round out my horror film knowledge. I know I've said before, I came late to the creature from the Black Lagoon films, one of my favorites from the original Universal run. I thought the sequel that came before this was just above average, so I was intrigued, you know, to see how this would shake out. Now, what I want to say a little bit differently from the synopsis is that it turns out that everything that happened in the first two films happened, but there is rumors that there is another creature similar to it that is living in the Everglades in Florida. So, Dr. William Barton, who is Jeff Morrow, Dr. Thomas Morgan, who is Rex Reason, and Jed Grant who is Greg Palmer, set out on an expedition to try to find it. And then coming with them is Dr. Barton's wife, Marcia, who is Snowden. What I like about her, though, is that she's used to adventures and she has experience with hunting as well as scuba diving. And they end up going to meet this man who tells them about what attacked him and has made him somewhat crippled. And that's where they set off to go find this. And once they do, they do capture it. But in the process, they cause it to have third degree burns all over its body. And this ends up making the scales fall off, and we learn that due to its metabolism being higher than human metabolisms, it also makes it to evolve much faster and turns it into where the lungs that it has inside end up forming where that's the only way that it can breathe. Now, much like other universal horror films, much like other universal horror films, they this one doesn't have the most complex story. What I do find inter interesting is that it came out in the mid-1950s, so we're getting more of the sci-fi aspects being incorporated here. That really does create some interesting social commentary that I do really enjoy to delve into when it comes into these type of movies. The first thing I want to tackle is the issue of evolution and the science that this movie is getting into along with that. Dr. Barton is convinced that experimenting and studied Gilman will result in us being able to explore space. I don't think he's completely wrong here, but because these sci-fi films did a lot with the idea of space and exploration, if you really look at it and consider it, the spacesuit isn't that different from suits that were used in deep sea diving, especially more early on. If we could really find a creature like this, and see how it could withstand the pressure from underwater, the implications could help in exploring the depths of the ocean or like this has going into space. And then going from this, I was also really interested in the genetics of the Gilman. They reveal, like I've said earlier, that the metabolism is higher than ours and that it's healing from its burns faster. What I do find interesting though, is the fact that because of its healing out of water, it does have lungs. They do explain here that there are certain fish that in the drought season, have found ways to survive where they can breathe oxygen like humans or just animals on land do. Now the gills here are burned closed so they have to resort to healing into being a land creature which I thought was a pretty cool touch for this movie. Because of the effects of its injuries it actually has to stay out of the water as well. Evolution is just something that I find to be interesting in general so seeing it playing out here faster definitely held my interest. 
The last thing I'm going to lump in together here is before Cannibal Holocaust, we are looking at humanity and how civilized we think we are as we are beasts at nature. It is crazy this is an aspect that is still quite relevant today. Dr. Morgan is nice to the creature while studying it, and we see that Gilman stops being as aggressive. It is only when something attacks does it retaliate. Now, we get Dr. Barton and Jed are both quite misogynistic. Dr. Barton doesn't trust Marsha. I don't know if she cheated on him previously or if he just thinks that she will because she doesn't wear a lot of clothes for the era and is just flirty by nature. He treats her like crap though and I feel quite bad for her. Jed is just your manly man that thinks that every woman wants him and I just despise his character. Now I do have to give the actor credit though as he got a reaction out of me. Now shifting from that, I want to go to the pacing, which I thought was fine. My gripe normally with the Universal films is that we don't get a lot of the monster and it doesn't have much in the way of story or subplot. This one does break that, as do others in this series do. I've delved into the social commentary and we get the creature within 20 minutes. It just kept me interested and I think the runtime of 78 minutes really does help here. I also like the ending and it is different from its predecessors. As for the acting, I thought Moral was solid and I actually like the duality of how I feel towards him. He's a man of science and I don't disagree with the line of experiments he's trying to do. Problem though is how he treats his wife and he's just a bastard all around. Now, I've already said what I feel about Palmer. It is just about the same with I would for the doctor. It just he doesn't have any redeeming qualities but I do like the reaction that I have towards him. Reason was good as the complete opposite to Dr. Barton. I do like that he treats Marsha with respect. I also enjoy that they gave her depth where she won't be told what to do by her husband and she's quite strong there. She's also quite attractive as well. Both Rico Browning and Don Migowan play the Gilman with one of them being in the water and one being the one on the land and I thought they both did well. For whatever reason they were uncredited but they do really bring this monster to life and I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. There's not a lot in the way of effects for this movie, and of course, you know, a lot of that is the time period that it's from. I do think the suit that they have for the Gilman was good. It looks fairly real, if I'm honest. And I also like that they even updated it, that after we get the burns from his body are healing, that we get a different type of form for this creature. And there's an interesting scene with the creature in the mountain lion as well. I thought that was kind of interesting to see. The underwater scenes I thought were pretty solid as well. And I would say that the cinematography is good overall. I have no complaints about how this was shot. And now with that said, I thought this was another good sequel. It does keep the feel of the original and just keeps expanding on the mythology. As a story guy, I like that it doesn't violate continuity. I like that they introduce about this creature and learning a bit more about its genetics. The pacing I thought was pretty tight and I never lost interest. Acting was solid, as was how the movie was shot, along with the look of the creature. The soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, but it also didn't hurt or take me out of it. I would say that I like this one better than the previous, and coming in, I would say that this is an above average movie overall, and I'm gonna give this a 7.5 out of 10. Still coming up short from the original one, though. Okay, and for my second movie of this week, I watched Transylvania. This is from 2009. It is directed by David Hillenbrand and Scott Hillenbrand. It is written by Patrick Casey and Josh Miller. It stars Patrick Cavanaugh, James DiBello, and Tony Denman. This is a comedy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 2.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being spoof horror in which a group of college students do a semester abroad in Romania and realize that if the partying doesn't kill them, the vampires just might. Now this is a film that I only got turned on to when I was looking into the previous films in the series that this falls with Dorb Days. 
They're part of the National Lampoon back comedies, or at least the first one was. This is my second time seeing this one, and I was intrigued the first time that they were incorporating horror movie elements into it, so I gave it a viewing. I didn't care for it then, but as I'm going back through my collection, I decided to give it another go. Now we begin in America and we meet Rusty, who is reprising his role, is Oren Skoog. He's a young man who is not getting laid as often as he would like. He has been dating a woman online from Romania and is convinced a bunch of his friends to study abroad with him. The Romanian girl he's dating is Draguta Floca, who is portrayed by Irina Violetta. He then, with some voiceover narration, introduces us to the friends that will be coming with him. There's Brady, who is portrayed by Miller. He's a nerd, and with him, his sexually confused roommate, Mike, who is portrayed by Casey. Now, Mike keeps seeing men who have feminine features, which includes making out with a guy in his past. It should be pointed out that both of them co-wrote this movie as well. Also coming along is the sexually experienced but not very smart Lynn, portrayed by Jennifer Lyons, who is now dating Numar, who is Denman. He's naive and completely opposite sexually than her. There are two stoner friends of Pete, who are Kavanaugh and Wang, played by Paul Hansen Kim. Pete is dating Leah, portrayed by Natalie Garza. She is smart and a good student, but she has a twin, Danny, who is Nicole Garza, who is more of a bad girl. Also coming back is Cliff, who is DeBello, who is supposed to be coming with them, but they don't know what happened. And we get to see that he had a deal with some Asian mobsters, but when it goes bad, he tries to run away and captured by them. All these people head to Romania. On their way there, Brady gives us the backstory from a history book of the area that tells them that vampires lived in the castle that now houses the school. I think it's interesting is the vampire who is in charge here, his name is Radu, which I'll get into that a little bit more, but that's also portrayed by Skoog. And there's much more to this story where there was a powerful witch who is Stefania, portrayed by Simone Petrick. There is also a vampire hunter, Edward Van Sloan, who is portrayed by Radu Andre Daniel. And his granddaughter, I believe it is, is Teodora Van Sloan, who is the beautiful Masetta Vander. And she's a teacher at the university currently and bumps heads quite a bit with the Dean, Floka, who is a dwarf actor, David Steinberg. Now the group arrived here and then as they're getting acclimated to the new place, comedy and if you've seen any of these type of movies, there's kind of mix-ups and different things like that to build some comedy, but this one also incorporates horror. And I would say, looking back at what I originally thought about this movie, I was quite harsh and realized now that I was also kind of wrong on some of the things. And I do think this is interesting to me that it was co-written by Josh Miller, as it's a name that pops up quite a bit for me, because he's good friends with Rob G from Shockwave's podcast and Fangoria. Now, I bring this up because after this viewing, I can see the wealth of horror knowledge that is brought to this movie. I won't name everything that I noticed, but I picked up on that there's Frankenstein, Dracula, subspecies, the brain that wouldn't die, as well as from what things that I looked up after I got done watching this is Young Frankenstein, and also what seems to be Eyes Without a Face, thrown in there for some you know good measure. Now, I'm a sucker for this type of detail, so my score has definitely come up because of that. And then to keep giving more credit, I like that they preserved as many characters as they could from the previous films as well. 
Rusty, Lynn, Numar, Pete, Wang, and Cliff are all back, with their characters being pretty much the same as they were in the previous film. Now, I did go back and look and see that the writers have been, you know, a part of this, so that definitely helps as well. Lynn doesn't have her sidekick, and now she's dating Numar, so that's something that has changed in between Dorm Days 2 and this. I like the things that are introduced early in this movie, and then referenced later on as well. It would also has that same feel that we get in the bumbling sex comedy, where there's a lot of mistaken identity and things are just intertwined as well. Despite what they did at bringing the feel of the previous comedies, I still just don't find this to be that funny. And I don't, I've recently watched the other two in the series and I don't find them to be all that funny either. It does have a lot of dick and fart jokes and they just don't land with me. Now, sometimes they do, but for whatever reason, this one, I did laugh a few times here and there, but that's really about it. It is paced just fine though. It really benefits from having a low running time at about 92 minutes, so I never got bored. This is a comedy first, and I've already said that the aspect didn't really work for me. The horror elements don't really go far enough to really make this fully go into that genre. It really is more of a comedy with just the elements for sure. The ending is fine. I like where all the characters end up, and it is fitting for the stories that we saw throughout the movie. Now, that will take me to the acting which I'll be honest is fine for a movie like this. Skoog I thought really does well at being Rusty as well as Radu. Miller and Casey don't really have the biggest parts but they're fine in what they do on screen. I know Miller is mostly here to kind of progress the story and he does have a crush on Leah. That's really about the extent of what we get there. Casey, they do keep playing up the fact that he's a closet homosexual that is just denying it. They don't go too over the top with it, so I don't really have any issues with, you know, that whole little subplot. Lyons is gorgeous and plays this ditzy character really well. Denman has a good look and plays this funny, awkward type guy who is dating up really well also. Kavanaugh and Kim play off each other well. Steinberg is fine. The Garza twins are both attractive and play distinct enough characters. Vander, DiBello, Violetta, and the rest of the cast run this out for what was needed. And I do, as a guy, have to shout out to Violetta, Desiree Malanga, Radita Rosu, and Adriana Butoy, as they all have some sort of nudity, if you are curious as well. I thought the effects were pretty solid. The vampires look real. I like the practical effects of the Frankenstein's monster and seeing where the seams are. And they're actually kind of gross because it does look bloody. And so I give credit for that. The bit of blood that we get are fine. There's some CGI, but where it's used, I'm fine with. It isn't anything prominent. So that I think works in its favor. The cinematography is another thing that I just thought was fine. Didn't really stand out, but I didn't really have any issues. So now with that said, this isn't a very good comedy with horror elements, but I will say it does have heart and I'll give it credit there. I really like the combination of Casey and Miller, who are also characters in the movie, really just using their horror movie knowledge and I appreciate that. The comedy isn't great. It is the type of comedy that really just doesn't land with me anymore. I mean, I might've thought this was funny when I was like 13, but you know, being now as a 32 year old man, it doesn't really work, but it never really bothered me and it is paced fine. The acting fits for what was needed. I had no issues with the effects. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, but most of the time it didn't really hurt or take me out of it. And I would have to say, I'm rating this just over average. And after rewatching all three of these, this one works the best for me after the rewatch of the series. So my rating here is going to be a 5.5 out of 10. And for my next film for this week is Ring You. This comes from 1998. This is directed by Hideo Nakata. It is written by Hiroshi Takahashi and comes from the novel from Koji Suzuki. It stars Nanako 
Matsushima, Miki Nakatani, and Yuko Takauchi. And I do apologize if I butcher any of those names and any of the names that come after this as well. This is a horror mystery film from Japan. This is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with synopsis being a reporter and her ex-husband investigate a cursed videotape that is rumored to kill the viewer seven days after watching it. Now, if you couldn't tell from the information prior that this is the original one that came out in Japan, and I actually saw this for the first time after I saw the American remake. I have to thank them because if they hadn't made that version, I might never have known this existed or at least much later after. Because so I think I probably checked this out about a year or so after seeing the original. And, you know, it was long before I ever got into podcasts or anything. But I'll be honest, after my first few watches, I still preferred the remake. I think I've seen this about five or six times total. Um, I could be wrong on that figure, but it's around there. But it wasn't until the last couple times that I really started to appreciate this and what it did. And I have had the opportunity to see this in the theater for my last two viewings, with the most recent viewing being in 4K. And just to kind of give you just a little bit deeper into what's going on here, aside from the synopsis, is we have a girl talking to her friend. girl is Masami, who is portrayed by Hitomi Sato. And we also have... Tomoko Oshi, played by Yuko Takauchi, and they talk about this curse tape that kills you one week after you watch it, where Tomoko reveals that she has seen this film but then tries to play it off, but then we see something happens to her later that night, before shifting over to a reporter who is named Raiko Asakawa, who is portrayed by Matsushima, as she is doing an expose on this urban legend about this curse tape that if you watch it kills you and the name that keeps coming up through everything is izu and raiko has a son who's yochi portrayed by rikia otaka and i do kind of want to point out here he's quite independent so he's getting himself dressed as well as getting his mother dressed out for her as they're going to the wake for tomoko as raiko is the aunt and yochi was her cousin and from here, she starts to look into this curse tape as she figures out from some of Tomoko's friends that is the rumor that killed them. And all of the friends have all died the same day that went on this little overnight trip together. And she even includes her ex-husband, who is Mai Tanako, who is portrayed by Miki Nakatani. And the interesting thing with him is that he is has some psychic abilities, so he comes in handy here as they try to look into what happened. Now, I will say, I am glad that I've seen this multiple times, and the more that I watch it with a critical eye, the more I think I finally have understood everything that this movie is going for. And I'll be a, perfectly honest, the first couple times, I actually really didn't even care for this, but it's really the more that I watch it, the more that I appreciate this, and actually find it to be better than the remake, which for some time wasn't the case. The dark mystery of this movie really gets pretty scary, if I'm honest. And I've also never really put it together until, I'd say in about the last year or so, this is actually based off of a novel, which I do want to eventually check out as well. Now what is interesting is that Raiko knows about this curse tape. It seems to be an urban legend that everyone seems to know somebody who knows someone who knows about it. So she's doing an investigative report onto the history and trying to learn more. So I like that aspect of the film that she already has some prior knowledge that just kind of deepens once she realizes that her niece possibly has been killed by it. 
And it's also interesting that we see her doing this initial interview, and then at the wake is when it pops up again, and she seems pretty shocked as well. And it also gives her added stakes into wanting to get to the bottom of what is going on here as well. Something else I like about this one is the X, my works better here than in the remake. I don't really love that he's a psychic, but I see why they go that route. It is easier to reveal backstory that way, and you can see it play out as well. From what I learned, this is more of a Japanese cultural aspect as well. I like this one, he's independent and he's somewhat psychic, but he does seem to be pretty normal overall as compared to the remake where that kid is just completely creepy. And I'm going to try not to compare this to the remake. It's just kind of hard as that was, you know, my first delving into this and I'm using it kind of to point out how much more I enjoy this version now. And kind of getting back into it, I will say this one does play out as a slow burn. It does pick up through as the investigation goes on. It's one of those things where they get momentum the more information they start to find out and kind of gets them onto a path that they can't really stop. The creepy images are downplayed here as they're not trying to go so much for scares. And I've gone back and forth with which version, this or the remake, that I thought had the creepier images on the tape. I would say that this one is more uncomfortable to me now and I'll get into why I think that is because it's not no so much the images but something else I will get into a little bit later. But I do love the darkness of the ending and the whole last 10 minutes of this are really worth the buildup that we got. Moving to the acting, I thought Matsushima was strong as the lead here. I do find it interesting that she knows about the tape. She's strong, but as time is winding down, we see her to start breaking down. I thought there was a solid touch in her performance at the end and what she ultimately decides to do to protect herself as well as her son. I do find it to be interesting though is that she's not the greatest mother. She's quite neglectful of Yochi and pretty much leaves him to his own devices when he's only in first grade. Now I do know he's very independent so I can understand that she trusts him. I just find it to be weird as somebody who I felt that I was allowed to stay home by myself at a pretty young age but I was nowhere near the age that we had here and you know had a babysitter for a good portion of it. I do find it that she's intriguing as a modern woman and kind of going back to that is that she's really worrying about her career in a place like Japan which usually focuses more on family as just you know by nature from things that I've learned and I also think she's quite attractive. Nakatani I thought was solid in his role. I liked his character overall. He's quite nonchalant but that is probably something how I would be if I was in this situation but I do like seeing that as his ex-wife starts to break down we see the changes come over him where he really kind of springs into action from there. I have to give shouts out to Takauchi, Sato, Numata, and the rest of the cast. They do round out the film for what is needed. I do have to give a shout out to Rai Inoyo, who is Sadako Yamamura. And you should know who that is if you've seen any of these or kind of know where the story you know how it all ends up playing out. Something I was surprised by in this one was the lack of effects. We do get uh, scenes where the color will drain out of it and it'll go to a black and white aspect, which I thought was a fine way to show when something was happening to a character. The tape in this film was quite creepy. There is some bad CGI clouds, and I'm assuming this was probably done with green screen. The look of the entity though I did thought was scary, and it makes me feel uneasy when I see it. 
and the cinematography I thought was solid. The last thing to go over would be the soundtrack. Now, the first few times that I watched this, I didn't really notice it, but it's really after this last viewing that it really, I could tell that it was there and it was really making my anxiety go up with it was building tension. It can be quite subtle, but I love the underlying noises while the movie, the cursed movie is playing. And it isn't one that I would listen to regularly, but it helps to build a brooding and uneasy feeling, which I do really think helps a lot. Now with that said, I finally come around that this is a much better movie than the remake. I tried not to compare them throughout as I said, but I really had to prove why I now like this one better. This film is really more of a dark mystery that has great horror elements and sequences with brooding feeling throughout. I think the concept of how spirituality, the Japanese, are really plays into this movie. The film is more of a slow burn, which I really enjoy. There are some good concepts and one that I'm not the biggest fan of, but I get why it's in there. I do think the acting is good. There's not in a lot of way of effects, but I thought what we get are pretty solid. I really like the look of the entity as well, just to point that out again. The soundtrack is subtle, but I think it really works to drive the tension. And I think this film is great overall. Now, I did watch it in Japanese with the subtitles on. If that's an issue, I would avoid it. I think there could possibly be a dub version out there, but I would recommend personally for me as it feels more natural to watch it in its real language but i would say if you like dark mysteries i would give this one a viewing and my rating here is a 9.5 out of 10. and for my next review i'm going to do murder party from 2007. this is written and directed by jeremy solnier this stars chris sharp kate porterfield and tess porterfield lovell this is a comedy drama horror thriller from the united states this is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a random invitation to a Halloween party leads a man into the hands of a rogue collective intent on murdering him for the sake of their art, sparking a bloodbath of mishap, mayhem, and hilarity. Now this is a movie that I was turned on to when I saw one of the writer and director's later films, Green Room. I really dug what he had going on there, so through podcasts I learned about this one and added it to my list of films to check out. I did come in relatively blind to just see what this, you know, was going to be, and thankfully it was streaming on Netflix. Now just to elaborate on the story that the synopsis gives to you, this movie kicks off with it establishing that it's Halloween. We have Christopher S. Hawley, who is sharp as he's renting a few horror VHSs before heading home. Now on his way, he's finding an invitation that is blowing in the wind down the sidewalk, and he picks it up and opens it, learning that he's been invited to something called Murder Party. Now I found this to be a little bit odd because it's not really his, so it just kind of blew to him, but he's somewhat of a loner and doesn't seem to have any friends, so he ends up taking it home with him where he discovers that his jack-o'-lantern has been smashed. He goes to settle in for the night to watch a movie, but we get a hilarious scene where his cat, Sir Lancelot, who is credited as Puff Snooty, won't get down from his chair. I like that this is an intriguing way to establish that his cat doesn't respect him, so people in life probably don't either. So he ends up deciding to go to this party where he uses his smashed pumpkin to make pumpkin bread with it that he includes raisins in. And then he builds a costume out of cardboard, which he makes into a, a pretty sweet night costume. And then he heads to this party. It is there that he meets Macon, who is Macon Blair, who has a hoodie and jeans on, and he has a werewolf mask. There's Lexi, who is Stacy Rock, who we see her really just kind of as an eccentric art person who is doing a lot of cocaine. We've got Sky, who is Sky Solnier. 
there's Paul, who is portrayed by Paul Goldblatt, who is dressed up as a 19th century vampire, and he's really into photography. And then there's Bill, who is William Lacey, who has the best costume out of everybody, as he is one of the baseball furies from the Warriors. Now, they're shocked that someone actually showed up, so they tie Chris up as, like the invitation said, this is a legit murder party, and they're going to kill this unsuspecting guy. What makes this interesting, though, is they're trying to get a grant from Alexander, who we see is later on as Sandy Barnett. And he has all these people who are different artists, and this money that he's offering them is life-changing. So they're trying to kill this guy and use their the murder as their medium of art. But we end up seeing that things aren't necessarily as they seem, and Chris is trying to survive despite what these people are doing. And they've never actually murdered anybody, so they're also quite bumbling in what ends up happening to them as well. Now, as I've already said, I didn't really know what I was getting into, and I do have to give credit to Saulnier. He didn't waste any time in introducing us to the characters or getting us into what is going on here. I think a lot of that is the movie only runs 79 minutes, and he doesn't waste any of that time. It can be tough when you don't have a lot of characters like we do here, but all of them do get fleshed out, and I can tell you something about each one, which credit to him to having that sort of care to go into that. What makes this even better is that none of these people are really killers. Sky is accidentally killed, and the group really panics on what to do. They could just call the police, but you really can't do that when there's a bunch of drugs and they have Chris tied up, as what happens to her is really just an accident. They all really want this grant, so they can't really do anything that could scare off Alexander as well. And he's a real jerk, and I love the reveal of his character. I don't think it is anything that's too shocking, especially with how he acts. It was just interesting, though, that they all really fell for it. And on top of that, Chris is an interesting character for me. He is really tied up and gagged for most of this movie. Seeing what these people are saying they're going to do to him and his fear growing to the point where his fight or flight reflex is going to eventually come into effect. I like that when it does and he gets his chance, it is quite realistic. The movie doesn't make him into this badass who just mows everyone down, and I like that. I also like that two of these characters in this collective are just pushed to the edge to the point where when they break, each one is different, but again, they're quite believable and I like where they end up going with it. I've already said, I thought the pacing here was good, so the other thing I really want to bring up would be that even though it does slow down in the middle to establish more of these characters, there are so many subtle things going on. This movie does get wild when Chris does get free and where it ends up. I wasn't necessarily expecting that, but pretty much every character has a reveal or growth and I can get down with that. Now, that should really take me to the acting, since the story isn't the most complex. If anything, this is really these characters' stories that are complex, and is what's driving this movie. Sharp really does well at being this bumbling guy that I felt bad for. He really doesn't have any friends, his cat doesn't respect him, and due to his loneliness, he goes to this party where he's going to be killed. And no one even knows where he's really going, or that even really know that much about him from what we gather. What makes this great, though, is the change that comes over his character where he ends up. Blair was really good as the artist that is in love with Lexi, but she's not really interested, and he's just kind of trying to do whatever he can to impress her. What happens to him in the end was interesting for sure. Rock is extremely pretentious, but there's something about her that I found attractive. Goldblatt is a bit oblivious and also a bisexual which plays into something interesting in this movie Lacey is one of my favorite characters as he's not really very engaged until the climax and i love 
when he gets to his breaking point, what he ends up doing. Barnett is another interesting character, along with his drug dealer, who is Zyko, played by Bill Tangrati. Also, shout out to Hellhammer, who is the dog portrayed by Samson Solnier, as he's definitely a cute dog in a skeleton outfit. Now, this will take me next to the effects. Something I have to give a lot of praise to Solnier for is the use of practical. Now, some of this could be done due to budgetary reasons, but if that's the case, I'm glad he was working within those constraints. This movie doesn't use a lot of them, which a good portion of it's hidden, so there's that. These people aren't actually killers, so they're working up to what they're trying to do. I thought there was some good cinematography, as it does hide some things, and what is shown definitely looked real. This includes something that happens at the end with Tumakin that really looked good and the climax I was on board with. The blood looks real with color and consistency for sure. So now with that said, I ended up really digging this movie. It doesn't have the most complex story, but it is character driven. And I think that they're all pretty fleshed out with things that we see and through interactions with each other. It has a low runtime, which I think definitely helps. I thought the performances bring their characters to life. I would say there's not a lot of way of effects, but it doesn't necessarily need them for what we got look good though. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, but it fitted for what was needed and it never took me out of the movie. So I'd have to rate this one above average and I can definitely see the beginnings of what this director ends up doing with a movie like Green Room for sure. And my rating here is going to be a 7 out of 10. Alright, now what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to the trailer for my first featured review, which is going to be for Ganja and Hess. The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul for everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee. Okay, and for my first featured review for this week, it is going to be for the film Ganja and Hess. This comes from 1973. This is written and directed by Bill Gunn. It stars Dwayne Jones, Marlene Clark, as well as Gunn. This is a drama fantasy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, after being stabbed with an ancient German-fested knife, a doctor's assistant finds himself with an insatiable desire for blood. Now, the reason that I checked this one out is I heard about it for the first time on the Horror Noir documentary. And it was one that I wanted to check out after hearing what they said about it. 
much more so because I wanted to see more of the history of black exploitation cinema, as it is a subgenre that I haven't really delved in too much. I know I've seen like Blackula and its sequel. And so for this podcast here, I wanted to, you know, delve a little bit since February is Black History Month to do a film directed by, you know, an African-American. So that's where I decided to come up with, you know, checking this out finally. Now we're let off with some lines that are going to give you, you know, a little bit more backstory about what we're going to see in this movie. And I'm not going to lie, this ended up throwing me off. I don't necessarily know if they needed it to kick this off. And then it's followed by narration from the Reverend Luther Williams, who is portrayed by Sam L. Wayman. And he's talking about how he's a minister at a Southern Baptist church, which we get to definitely see that where everybody's singing, speaking in tongues, and just having, you know, a lot of energy, which not gonna lie if i went to a church like that even though i wouldn't want to necessarily participate might have kept me you know going to church a little bit longer than what i used to and we also learned that reverend williams works for dr hess green who is jones as a chauffeur as well as i believe he says a stable hand he also reveals to us that his boss has an addiction to blood but we're then taken to see how what led to all this before this ends up happening now dr hess is a famous anthropologist who is looking into an ancient African tribe called the Mithurians. Now, the lore is that they were thought to be blood drinkers, and working with Dr. Hess is George Meta, who is portrayed by Gunn. Meta is unstable and threatens to kill himself that night. We actually see him sitting in a tree with his drink on the ground, and there is a noose tied up with Dr. Hess kind of scolding him and is able to actually talk him down. That night, though, Meta attacks him with a ceremonial dagger from Mithra. Mita then kills himself in the bathroom after he bathes, and then we see that Dr. Hess, though, has survived the attack. The thing is, he's not normal anymore, as he has transformed into a vampire. And we get a little bit from the opening lines from the movie about how if you're stabbed three times, you know, once for the Son, the Holy Ghost, as well as one for God, that you'll be this creature that he is, and he drinks the blood of Mita. Now I'm going to delve a little bit more into this while I'm going over the story as this becomes slightly problematic in that this is, seems to be from an African tribe and they state that it's ancient, but why would they be already following Christianity in Africa as that doesn't necessarily line up? Now being that Dr. Hess is a man of science, he goes to the place that he works and steals a bunch of blood. This is able to tie him off for some time, but he soon has to seek new victims as his bloodthirst is stronger than he realized. Things then end up taking a turn when Mita's estranged wife, Ganja, who is Clark, calls him from the airport. She's looking for her husband and Dr. Hess kind of puts her off a little bit, but she does tell him that she has arrived in the town and Dr. Hess decides to let her stay with him in his expansive estate. The two of them do end up falling for each other, and he decides that he's going to share his gift. The question is, though, is this really a gift or is this a curse? Now, I decided to go a little bit lighter on the recap here, as the story isn't the most complex. I am glad to say, though, that doesn't mean that this is lacking anything, though. There is still quite a bit to dissect in this movie, and I will admit, after it ended, I did look up some things before, you know, writing as well as recording this because of the social commentary that Gunn was trying to get across here. Now, the first thing I wanted to get into is the interesting aspect of this being a black exploitation film. Now, it comes out in 73, but I really like the fact that we got an African-American actor in the prominent roles. 
we have a famous anthropologist who is black. His assistant is black. And heck, Dr. Hess even has a butler who is black, who is Archie, played by Leonard Jackson. Now, he owns this expansive mansion with a bunch of land, and I honestly think this is surprising even today, as I'm writing this almost 50 years after it was made, and that's saying something that I do think some people would be shocked to see how successful Dr. Hess actually is. To shift this slightly, we are sticking with the African roots. I like this film's take on vampirism. It isn't traditional, as we don't have Dracula or many of the rules that we normally expect with this monster. They do need blood to survive, but they don't have a any super strength, and they can even go out in the daylight. I also think they can actually eat, but it's just blood what they need to survive. Where a lot of traditional vampire films and lore, if they eat normal food that it actually gets them sick, I don't think that's the case here. I also found it interesting to read that the writer, director, and co-star of the movie was given full reign to make a vampire film, but that's not necessarily what he wanted to do. He ended up making this an, an allegory of addiction, which is something that pretty prevalent today with being, you know, having this social commentary, as well as addiction is a major problem still. Now, I'm not sure how many films were working with this in the era of having them, you know, carry a message like this, but I do have to give credit. He did get this movie shown at the Cannes Film Festival, and for being, you know, a film from a, you know, minority director, as well as being a horror film, is pretty impressive. And I think I also read that this won a award for, from the critics or the fans or something like that, so I thought that was pretty cool. The film also has a look at organized religion that I found to be intriguing. If you know anything about me, or have followed any of my reviews, you know that I love when religion is questioned. I really notice this at the end when Reverend Williams is going on and on about how he won't let evil into his church, but then Dr. Hess comes in. Now, he is a man of science, and I like that he's looking for the answer to cure himself of this curse through books about the tribe that he was looking into. But when he gets desperate and it starts to fail, he turns to faith. Now, this is also problematic because I feel like a lot of times people only turn to religion when they're faced with their own mortality. Or in this case, he's faced with his curse that he has. That they fall back on faith because they have nothing else there and they just become desperate. And my problem ends up becoming that religion just takes them back open-handed and open-armed. And it's like, is there really anything to do with religion here then that actually holds anybody accountable? Or is it just when, you know, things get bleak, you just turn to this and then you're kind of put at ease because it's supposed to just take you back because that's what they do. I do have to say that I like how this plays back into the ending though, which I might have a spoiler section. At this moment, I'm not planning on it, but as I keep talking, if I have anything that I really want to delve into, I'll let you know about it. But as of right now, with you know still some review to go, I don't really have too much that I want to spoil here. So I just wanted to kind of warn you now, but I'll get more into that as we go. And as I kept reading more about this, I did learn that there are two cuts. I watched the long version, which runs 110 minutes. This version didn't do very well in the box office, and I hate to say it, I'm not surprised. Now, it was recut and dubbed Blood Couple. What I found interesting is that it has footage that wasn't included in this one. I think they said something like 20 minutes, but it also cuts out a lot of what the longer version has as well. And I guess from also, I learned that Gunn wasn't a fan of that cut. I did think that the long version is a bit long. I respect for what he did with 
introducing mythology that I'm not familiar with, as well as other aspects that contributed to the surreal feel of it. I just end up getting a bit bored as this doesn't have the most complex story and is really just a character study of Dr. Hess and Ganja with some interesting imagery, but they just kind of sit around and talk and then we get these kind of extended montages. But I just think that it, there's things that could have been trimmed to tighten this up and just make it a stronger movie for me. And that's the thing is like, I don't necessarily hate long films. I just think you need to warrant having that length for me to be fully on board. Now I did like the ending and the implications that we got there. The acting of the movie I thought was really strong. Before watching this, I was looking into it just a bit to kind of get an idea of what I was getting into. And when I saw Dwayne Jones's name as the lead, I knew that I had to see this. Night of the Living Dead changed my father's life, which in turn had a great impact on mine. And I've never seen Jones in anything other than that let alone another horror movie. He plays this role quite brooding, and it's not that different from his performance in Night. I think he's a great counterpoint to Ganja, who is more of a free spirit. She shows her emotions and just kind of rides those to the things that she does. I do find this intriguing that she was married to a man like Mita, who was the assistant to Dr. Hess before actually marrying Hess as well. Clark did a really good job in her performance. I thought that Gunn, Wayman, Jackson, and the rest of the cast were fine in what was needed. And another thing that really drives this is the effects. It is hard to see some of this as the print that is streaming on Amazon was a bit rough. And I'm just assuming that it wasn't taken the best care of and being from the 70s. I do think this does hide a bit of what could have been problematic for me. This movie doesn't have a lot in the way of traditional effects though. We do get blood that is a bit too bright and is orange. I have a soft spot for that though, being that my favorite horror movie is Dawn of the Dead. What I really like about this movie though is the cinematography. It gives a surreal, eerie feel to the images and it's effective for me. I also like that it's an interesting montages to fill in things so they don't have to show everything. They can kind of just give us images to explain what they're getting at. Now I read that this was also an experimental film and I really got that vibe as well. The last thing that I actually wanted to cover that goes along with the effects would be the soundtrack. There's a lot of African music in this along with choir singing from church. I personally think both work as it really fits the culture of the people that we are seeing. There are some selections that coupled with images that we're seeing that really did build this surreal feeling and almost gave it an eerie feel as well. I really enjoyed that because if you can make me feel uncomfortable, you have my attention. Now, this movie does do some interesting things. I really like the aspects of the story that Gunn incorporated here, even though I, this wasn't a movie that he was necessarily looking to make. This is a different take on the vampire lore that I can appreciate. I like the social commentary that we're getting here as well. The version I watched did run a bit long, and I think that the acting was strong. The cinematography and soundtrack were as well. There wasn't a lot in the way of effects. I didn't necessarily need them for the type of movie that this actually is. I would say that this is an above average movie. Some of the things worked here, but not everything. And I think that's representative by the score that I end up giving this. Like I said, this is really more of a character study than focusing on the creatures themselves, which I think was good. As I was saying kind of earlier, we get Dr. Hess, who's a man of science and is very reserved and brooding, where I can see him end up falling for, you know, his counterpoint and the complete opposite of himself in Ganja, who is more of a free spirit. And But I do like to see at first that she is very shocked and depressed by the turn and of what he makes her into. And seeing her deal with that was something that I did find, you know, to be quite intriguing. 
just a few things I wanted to do before completely ending this out is I did find it interesting to learn that I kind of already touched on this a little bit, I guess, but that the vampirism is a metaphor for addiction. And Gunn also had a lot of leeway and creative control as the producers of this had relatively, you know, inexperience at filmmaking. I thought that was, you know, pretty interesting. He did get selected for Critics Week at Cannes Film Festival. This did receive positive reviews and it did actually win a Critics' Choice Prize at Cannes. And James Murray of the Amsterdam News hailed this as the most important black produced film since Sweet, Sweetback's badass song. This was considered to be a landmark as a 1973 indie that used vampirism as an ingenious metaphor for black assimilation, white cultural imperialism, and the hypocrisies of organized religion. I definitely got a lot of that last part there. I'm assuming that the black assimilation and cultural imperialism of whites was that Dr. Hess is kind of carrying on like he would be, you know, a white doctor and just how he's living and just some of the things that he does and acts, which I think some of that might be him, you know, abandoning some of their culture in what he's doing and how he's living. It does look like that Kelly and Jordan, the people that were the producers that also distributed this, were just unhappy and they're kind of behind the, you know, blood couple cult that was created. There was a compromised release and the cut was donated to the Museum Modern of Art, whose screenings, according to the writer of Chris Fijiwara, helped to build the reputation as a neglected classic of independent African-American cinema. There was a remake created by Spike Lee back in 2014 that was titled The Sweet Blood of Jesus. All right, now that's all I really wanted to delve into here. I know I haven't given my rating yet, which is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. This will be one I would like to check out now that I've seen it and just kind of see how a second viewing would affect what I think about it. But what I'm going to do now is kick you over to the trailer for my next featured review. I'm called Gretel, and this rough one here is my brother Hansel. again. It's too scary, you know, start seeing things that aren't there. You've been turned out of your home. You've set out to fend for yourselves with only your clothes and your hides. I'm hungry. I'm hungrier than you are. Because you're a pig. Look! It smells of cake! Careful with that, dear. I'd hate for you to start something you can't stop. Please make your acquaintance. I'm called Gretel, and this rough one here is my brother Hansel. something wrong here. But it's so pleasant. Where are all the animals? From where does she draw milk? Gretel, there's a storm coming. This is your power. To see what is hidden and to take it. <laughs> we were given the same gift, the same. Magic. Brother! Brother! Ah! 
did you join him? All that is left is to make him. Okay, and for my second featured review of this week, it's going to be for this year's Gretel and Hansel. This is directed by Oz Perkins. It is written by Rob Hayes. It stars Sophia Lillis, Charles Babalola, and Alice Krieg. This is a fantasy horror thriller coming from a co-production from Canada, Ireland, the United States, and South Africa. This is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. The synopsis being a long time ago in a distant fairy tale countryside, a young girl leads her little brother into a dark wood in a desperate search for food and work only to stumble upon a nexus of terrifying evil. Now this is a movie I was pretty excited about when I heard that it was, you know, coming out. I've seen both of Oz Perkins films in The Black Coat's Daughter and I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. I really like the former and I'm in the minority that I at least dig the latter one. I do see it is a little bit problematic, but I still you know, enjoyed watching it. And then coming into this, I had an idea of how this would go as I knew his style and I actually got to see this with my girlfriend who also agreed to come with me. So that made it nice that I you know, didn't have to go see this one alone. We started this movie learning about the tale of this beautiful girl in a small village. They all know that she's not gonna survive her first winter. So the father takes her to a witch that sits on top of a large hill and I guess a tiny mountain. I'm not really sure which is which, but it definitely has a treacherous way to get there. And she sits underneath a triangle on top of this and he takes you know his daughter there to get this curse removed from her. The problem though is that the witch bestows a gift of sight upon her. The townspeople come to her to learn their future, but her prophecies never end well. And we also see that she has some darker abilities. She is then left in the forest to fend for herself after her father kills himself. And then there's a hole in the ground that she lures children to. We then shift to Gretel, who is Lilith. She introduces herself and that home life is pretty tough. Her father has passed away and her mother is struggling to provide for her and her little brother Hansel, who is Samuel Leakey. He is attached to her hip and comes on an interview that Gretel is going to to try to become a housekeeper for some nobility in the area. Now, the interview doesn't go great as she pretty soon learns what he's actually interviewing her for. And she's pretty offended by the request that he's making and some of the questions that he asks. But then her mother isn't happy and kicks the both of them out. And it is really more that she can no longer provide for them and is losing her mind. The two children then set off into the woods. Then they encounter some creepy things as well as a hunter who is Charles Babalola. He directs them to where they can go to live with some woodsmen. And then things don't necessarily go as they planned as they end up coming up to an odd house that ends up belonging to Holda, who is Krieg. The two of them semi-force their way in but she ends up allowing them to stay, gives them food and shelter. Gretel tells Hansel to be wary of gifts, and we learn the truth of what is going on here as Holda mentors Gretel to her true potential. Now, I felt that I wanted to go a little bit brief on the recap here as to both not spoil things, and this is still pretty new, so I'm assuming that not everybody has seen this, but this also doesn't have the most complex story as well. Now, I personally like that they use the fable of Hansel and Gretel, but that Perkins also did his own thing with it as well. 
We actually get two different types of stories here that are going on. Now we have the tale that is presented in the beginning is the history and then these two children's stories also converge into it, which I personally liked. Now I have listened to a few podcasts and I know one of which wasn't the biggest fan, but I can understand that, you know, teach their own. Much like the fairy tales that we grew up with, this is an allegory that is presenting a couple of different things, but doing it in a fantastical type of way. One of which is that of puberty and Gretel becoming a woman. We get an intriguing scene where she gets her first period, which seems to be brought on by something that Holda does, but she also predicts it. The other allegory is that of motherhood. The two kids' mother, you know, is quite horrible, but I am a little bit forgiving of her as she is broken mentally and can't care for her children and forces them to fend for themselves. This forces Gretel to become almost a young mother trying to raise a child that she isn't ready for. And it's actually kind of interesting to have a cautionary tale like this come out in an era where we have some popular reality shows like 16 and Pregnant or Teen Mom. Now something else that I really dug here was the empowering for women in this movie. The young girl at the start is casted out of her village for her power. Holda is a powerful witch and we see that Gretel has some subtle power in the beginning and that Holda hints that there's much more that is stored within her. She is out to release this power and to help her cultivate it. This movie does seem to be missing something though. I do think that the two stories are interesting. I even think that the reveal of Holda with the original story was one that was interesting. I even think that the reveal of Holda with the original story that was introduced was good as well as with the interactions with the two children. I just feel there's something with this movie that really just made me not feel completely satisfied. I'll admit that when I listened to two podcasts about it, I really do agree with what was said about this as well. I was never actually bored, but as I was saying, I just feel that it is missing some aspects. Now the ending though, I did feel like was solid in my opinion. Now that will take me to the acting which I thought was pretty strong. Lilith, I think, really does well with her facial expressions, and I like the changes that come over her character as she grows in this movie. I would definitely say she is a star for sure, but there in support of her is Krieg, who did an amazing job as well. She's so creepy and mysterious that I thought worked for me. It is intriguing, though, as the movie goes along here, that she kind of disappears a bit, and I wasn't the biggest fan there. We also have Jessica D. Growl. She was quite attractive, and I thought she was fine, as well as Leaky and the rest of the cast that we do get. But it is pretty surprising is that there's not the biggest cast in this movie as well. Now, since this movie is dealing with a witch and there's magic, we do have some CGI. But to be honest, I really didn't have any issues with it, and so I'll let what we did get slide. What I really wanted to talk about, though, would be the cinematography, which I thought was great. Visually, this movie is stunning, and the lighting really helps here as well. It really doesn't feel like we're in a fairy tale, and it is able to convey some things through this without needing to actually tell us as well. Now, the last thing to go over would be the soundtrack. This was also something that I really did enjoy. Now, one of the other shows that I heard brought up that it doesn't fit the traditional string instruments that you'd get in a movie like this, but we end up getting more of like a synth sounding from that was made popular in like the 80s. Whatever it is, it made me feel uncomfortable and helps to enhance the feel this movie was going for. Some also seem to have issues with the voiceover that we got from Lilith. I didn't mind it. It wasn't necessarily needed, but it really didn't ruin anything for me and I get what they're doing with it there. Now that said, there are some aspects of this movie that I really like. I thought the backstory worked for me and it had a different take on this fairy tale as well. The social commentary that this movie is trying to get across is something that I can get behind, along with the amazing visuals and the soundtrack fit along with that. 
There's something just missing from the story that I'm not entirely sure what it is though. I thought that the acting was good across the board and I do think that this is going to be a polarizing film for some people as it's pretty art house. But overall I would say that my rating here is that this is above average and I'm coming in with a 6.5 out of 10. Now with that taken care of, I do want to go into a slight spoiler section here. Not going to delve too much into some things, but there were just some that I kind of wanted to get into more here. So I'm going to go ahead and start that here. So if you don't want to hear any spoilers, I will have it time coded so you can catch the you know end of the episode after this. Okay, so some of the spoilers here is the movie really kind of builds up in the beginning that this young girl is actually Krieg all grown up. So playing, you know, Holda. It actually turns out, though, is that Holda was her daughter. And I did hear on a podcast earlier that the witch that was on top that does all the remembering the curse and everything like that was actually her as well. I don't know about that, even though it does seem to be... You know, the same body build and everything like that. But I do find it interesting that this little girl haunts the woods and that there's a bunch of children that keep appearing as well. I think it's just kind of, that might be what I'm missing in this story is why is there this witch doing all of this and what does it have to do with this little girl? Because I understand that they're related, you know, mother-daughter here and that the magic has, you know, been passed on from the mother to the girl. I just guess I don't understand why she's still haunting everything like that and... Unless they're just trying to get at here that the witch needs to be defeated for this girl to finally, you know, be at rest. But, I mean, going from there as well, I personally like the idea that this movie is empowering to women, like I said earlier. Now, I did hear as well on another show that the title of the movie is to be different from other incantations of this movie. But it's also because they wanted to focus more on Gretel as she really, like I said, is the main character here. And this is all about her coming into her own as a woman, as well as coming into the power that she has. And I know some people were worried about what was going on, like, in the layer of this thing. What I liked about that is it's almost like a correlation back to the original myth and fairy tale, because, you know, in that one, the witch is pushed into the oven and is killed. Where we have here is Hansel climbing the ladder to get up to the cage above it. And then the witch ends up being burned in this, you know, weird type of open fire pit thing that they have going on here. Now, this movie does have some sexual innuendos, or at least that's what I kind of took it as. In that there's a moment where there's this salve that Holda shows to Gretel, and then they use it to pick up, I don't know if it's supposed to be a witch's wand, or if this is supposed to be just a, like a walking stick. But it definitely, they rub it on there and then are able to, for it to stand straight up. And I do kind of feel that they were, you know, hinting at that a little bit. So I think that's all I really wanted to say here in the spoiler section. Like I said, not really anything overly, you know, complex or go on too long here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you to one last musical break before I close out the show.
Okay, I want to thank you for listening to episode number 14 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. To just kind of close out the show here, if you want to read any of my written reviews, you can get them at Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com. You can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Facebook, you can find me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. And I also run the Horror Fans Worldwide page that is on there as well. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On the Flick Chat app, that join code is Journey with a Cinephile. And that is an app that you can download that is message board based where we can chat about horror movies or whatever you'd like. And for my next episode, I know that I'm going to jump back into doing a horror movie directed by a woman, which is going to be Prevenge. And then on top of that, I'm not sure what my second movie is going to be, because my plan is to see two different 2020 movies, as my goal will be to check out Come to Daddy as well as After Midnight. I might end up reviewing one for this show and then doing the other one on the next not completely sure yet just going to kind of see how everything plays out and how i can work both of them in as they're both showing at the gateway film center this week but other than that i once again want to thank you for listening and coming on this journey with me this is david garrett jr signing off